Welcome to the Know Your Audience podcast, meaningful conversations about what it takes to create engaging content from the people who are shaping the future of media. The digital publishing industry is changing, and now, more than ever, we need to work together to best understand how to create amazing content for our audiences, day in, day out. If we can do that, we'll be able to find success. This podcast is powered by Kaya. Kaya is an audience insights platform built by publishers for publishers. The platform is designed to help you better understand your audience, track and increase engagement, and deliver a more targeted product. Subscribe to Know Your Audience. Episodes will release weekly, every Tuesday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time on iTunes. You can learn more about the podcast at getkaya.com slash podcast. My name is Jenna Matecki, and I'm your host. Our first episode features Melanie Diesel. Melanie is a branded content strategy consultant and the founder of the Overlap League, a native ad industry community and newsletter. Listen to what Melanie had to say about what sponsored content really is, what it means for our industry, and the art of storytelling. I'm Melanie Diesel. I'm a branded content strategy consultant and formerly the director of creative strategy at Time Inc. Wow. What does that mean, directive of creative strategy? Yeah, nothing inherently. (laughs) Um, But yeah, effectively, when an advertiser would come to Time Inc. and want to do branded content or sponsored content with more than one of the Time Inc. brands, and they have 35 in the U.S., my job was to be sort of air traffic control and make sure that their strategy and their content was aligned across all those different magazines. Big question. What is sponsored content? It's a really good question. Yeah, so it's sometimes called sponsored content or branded content or native advertising. Um, it was at one point, you know, very in vogue to call it advertorial. Mm. Um, but effectively, it's an advertiser recognizing that storytelling is the best way to connect with their audience. And in the form of native advertising, that means partnering with a publisher who can really help them with the tools and best practices of storytelling to get that message across. Right, because that publisher knows how to write a story. Exactly. And, you know, we always say that if I were going to make cheese, I would go to someone who makes cheese and not try to do it myself. And so the inverse is exactly true, that if a cheesemaker wants to do storytelling, they're probably going to come find a publisher who can help them do that rather than to kind of strike out on their own and hope it works out. Great. When you're providing recommendations to your clients about this type of stuff, what are some examples that you point to of good, really great, well-done sponsored content? Yeah, I've been really lucky to work with some of the really talented folks, especially in my previous role when I was at um, Time Inc. And then when I before that, I was at the New York Times through T Brand Studio. That's their in-house team that makes all the branded content. And you know, we worked with Netflix on a piece called Women Inmates, which was sponsored by Orange Is the New Black. You know, the series about women in prison. And so in that case, what we were able to point them to is let's try to find the overlap between what this show is about and what our audience is interested in. And in that case, it's going to be public reform. It's going to be policy. It's going to be government and things like that. So the overlap that we found was the women, women's unique experience of incarceration. How is it different from men? How is the prison system set up to accommodate different needs in health, in mental health, in their life experience, in their families? And so we wrote a 1,500-word investigative piece that was you know, very journalistic in style. It used the same kind of sources and the same kind of quality in terms of writing and editing. 
we filmed a three-part mini documentary that we actually interviewed current and former um, women who are in prison or prison workers, prison reform advocates. And we also, you know, added into the piece things like infographics and audio clips to really present this kind of immersive experience that the New York Times readers were used to. You know, they were used to in-depth storytelling, to multimedia. So we wanted to take all that into account. And that piece was, you know, it won Best Native Advertising in 2014 from the OMA Awards and was really widely covered as sort of an example of this is how it should be done, really letting the story guide the content and not setting out to tell a story from the beginning, you know, predetermining the outcome, but really looking into a story and letting that determine what form it takes. Yeah, I remember that piece. It was a fun one. <laughs> <laughs> Your background is, you know, in journalism, and then you go into sponsored content. What were... What do you like about sponsored content, and how did you marry your background within journalism towards this kind of new beast, right? I mean, is it, is it an ad? Is it not an ad? Does it stand on its own? Does it have to be, you know, I mean, all the questions that one would ask. Yeah, those are all very valid questions that anyone who's in this sort of role creating this kind of content deals with on a daily basis, or more often if you have a particularly active inner voice. Um, but, you know, it's one of the things that I, I kind of felt I kind of felt like someone's going to do this content anyway, right? This is what's happening in the industry. This is the trend. Advertisers increasingly want to use stories as a way to reach their audience. And so as a journalist, I like the idea of someone with my experience, my background, or a similar experience in journalism being at the helm of that and being the gatekeeper, being able to guide the story and make sure that it's truthful, that it's using proper sources, that it's well-written, that it's edited, that there's really a strong narrative driving it and not just a product focus. Um, so I think overall that, that makes it a win-win for everyone, right? The, the readers get better content to engage with as opposed to an ad that might be disruptive to their experience or not relevant. The publishers get new revenue streams and the advertiser ultimately, hopefully, achieves their goal of connecting with an audience. So for me, I, I like to think that I can play a role in helping to make that better um, and, and that makes it really worthwhile. And the other thing that's great about it is, in a way, I like to think of it as funded editorial. There's a lot of editorial projects that you know, stories that don't get to get told just because there's no budget or there's no time or there's no one on staff who has that expertise. So when you're working in Native and you have a big budget behind a project, like that Netflix project, for example, where we were able to bring in the kind of experts we would need to quote, we were able to dedicate the time because we had budget behind it to, to really do that reporting in a very deep, you know, a very deep way. And to be able to do that when you might not otherwise, I, I see it as an opportunity. I think it's a chance for creators to get an alternate income stream, but also get to work on some really cool stuff that they might not otherwise. Why do certain sponsored content campaigns go right or wrong? What are some elements of a really great piece that just hits all of those benchmarks that you, you know, just described of like what makes it good? And where do people just miss, miss the point of it? Just kind of, oh, no, that's not really well executed. I can tell that this is sponsored. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really feel natural. Yeah, I, I make the analogy often to dating or, you know, there's that guy at the bar and the one who comes in and only talks about himself and has no interest in you or what you're doing is not the person you're going to spend a lot of time with and not the person you're going to have a high opinion of. And so I really encourage our advertisers um, to spend some time thinking about their audience. What are they interested in? What questions and challenges do they have? What sort of experiences do they have on a daily basis that you can be a part of? So not just talking about your product, but talking about how your product makes them feel, talking about what challenges your product helps them solve. Um, that allows you to have a deeper conversation, you know, the kind you would when you're meeting a new person. You know, who are your friends? What do you like to do? 
Um, you know, just asking those kinds of questions and creating content around the answers is a really good way to make sure that the content resonates. Um, with regards to the labeling, it's a really big question in the industry right now. The Federal Trade Commission just came out with some new guidelines and everyone's sort of abuzz wondering what, if anything, is going to come of that from a legal perspective. I think the important thing to remember is that most studies show that an overwhelming majority of people actually do trust sponsored content from a brand as long as it's within their area of authority. So I always say you, you go and buy a box of you know cupcake mix at the store. You don't flip it over and look at the recipe and think that there's no way you can trust that, right? You know When your phone is not working the way it should, you trust that Apple's blogs are going to give you the answers or their forums are going to give you the answers that you need. So the key then becomes making sure that the content you create as a brand is within your area of authority. You know, if you have Apple giving you recipes for, for cupcakes or you have a, you know, a baking company trying to tell you how to fix your phone, that's where you kind of get into that weird area where this doesn't feel right and not because it's not true, but because it doesn't make sense to come from this person or this brand. So that part is key upfront thinking, what do I have the authority to speak about and how can I broaden that message uh, beyond just my products or services? The word brand is, has so many different meanings. How is a news outlet a brand? Well, it's funny. Um, when I started working at Time Inc. for the first time and I heard everyone referring to our magazines as brands, that was something that was tough for me to get used to because coming from the journalism world, a brand was an advertiser. You know, we didn't refer to our own companies as brands. But I think especially over the last few years, there's been this shift that everything and everyone is a brand. You know, government is a brand and people are brands and everything's a brand. Um, so my my thought is basically that at the essence a brand is supposed to be a representation of something. It's how you feel about that thing. It's what it is in a nutshell. It's how you relate to it. Um, you know, there's brands that we respect and there's brands that we despise. And um, those characteristics, whether you're talking about the publisher or the advertiser, there has to be an alignment in order for content to work in that overlap. And so it it does mean that sometimes an advertiser can't work with certain publishers because their values don't align or vice versa, that some publishers might not be willing to work with certain advertisers because their values don't align. And I think that's an important thing to remember. It doesn't, you shouldn't be afraid to not create a partnership. You, sh you should be looking for the perfect partner and not just taking anyone who comes along from a content perspective because the best content's gonna happen when that alignment is natural and when there's an alignment of values because then you know that your content is also gonna have the same values as your readers and that ultimately is the goal. Can you describe the experience of being on a team in-house at a news organization, getting some type of ping from a brand that wants to do sponsored content and what questions you ask yourselves and maybe even how you would structure your team and who's doing what and how that piece gets created. Yeah, so the process varies pretty widely um, by publisher and it depends it's often structured very similarly to how their newsroom might be structured, right? So if you're working at a publication like the Huffington Post, that's where I was first, um, our focus was just digital content. So all of our team on the HuffPost Partner Studio side was very digitally savvy and tended to be pretty young, just like our, our newsroom staff was. Um, we focused a lot on lists and on slideshows and on blogging because those were the things that our editors focused on. So those were the kinds of experiences that we were looking for in our team. And we were structured to create work very quickly. So we wanted jack of all trades um, who could work, you know, not only with a client, but then create the content and then work with our social team. So we wanted that very quick, agile kind of adaptability in our team. And there wasn't a ton of hierarchy because everyone was expected to kind of contribute to each part of the process. So that team was very free flowing and, and we worked very quickly. If 
you look at an organization like the New York Times and T-Brand Studio, there was a little bit more of a traditional structure there, or there is now. That team has grown a lot in the last few years. Um, but there's more of a structure there that, that reflects the structure of the newsroom. So you have an, ed an editorial director who leads up that team. And then you have uh, a director of strategy. You have a director of branded video. You have a director of design or, um, you know, a, yeah, a director of design. And w under each of those directors, you then have a hierarchy of maybe senior designers and junior designers. You might have freelancers working as well. So that structure is very similar to, you know, the typical org chart that you see in a newsroom where someone's at the top and then there's several vertical heads and then there's sort of more junior people flowing down underneath and so you end up with almost mini departments within that content team and it does function like a newsroom so those groups group heads are getting together on a regular basis and talking about what's happening on their their sort of sub team um, and divvying up work depending on who has what bandwidth and what expertise so that functioned a little bit more like a newsroom would I think and then in a group like Time Inc., where you have all these different brands, you know, all these different media properties, we had 35 in our U.S. portfolio. Um, so there you have a lot more layers. So you've got individual teams at each of those media properties that might be functioning differently, depending again on what their their um, typical content is like. So a group like Sports Illustrated, you're going to want people who are very sports oriented, who are probably pretty savvy with photo and video because that's pretty heavy on their site. And then when you're looking at something like InStyle or People, you want someone with a more lifestyle spin who you know can really talk about personalities and people and is up to date on celebrity and culture. Um, so those teams were structured differently and then they sort of laddered up to even a corporate team that was more the jack of all trades who could switch from one voice to another and kind of work across all those properties. So it really varies very widely and there are some publishers out there who have specialties. So uh, a brand like Elite Daily, um, they're pretty video heavy, so they have a more video focused branded team. But a group like Slate, um, they have made their mark with podcasting, so I imagine that their team might be more audio focused than some of the teams that are at some of the other publishers. So it really depends almost as much variance as you'd see on the editorial side. So, say if I'm GE or BP and I want a really juicy piece of branded sponsored content. Do I tell you, hey, can you plug me in these certain areas, or do I give you complete freedom? If I'm someone from one of those organizations and I think, great, this all sounds really, we should be doing so much more of this, what are the things I should think about as I'm approaching a team like yours? Yeah, so typically the way it works is a brand would, an advertiser brand would send what's called an RFP, a request for proposal, and they would send that out to a bunch of partners, maybe 10, maybe 100, to see what those people can offer. And they'd include information like, here's my budget, here's my flight timing of when I'd like my content or ads to be live, here's the messaging that we're currently in market with, here are the things we want to talk about or you know the initiatives we have, maybe here are some of the charities or partners we're working with. Um, and they pretty much tell you, this is I'm looking for something in this realm, and it's on the person who receives that RFP to come back with a plan. So oftentimes they'll send that out to many different publishers and some might come back and say, hey, here's some standard ad placements. That's really all we can offer that achieves these goals. Others might come back and say, we want to do a video program where we interview people. And another might come back and say, we're looking to do an investigative piece and we're going to pair that with infographics, you know, interactive infographics. So the brand then has to take a look at all the responses that they get from these different publishers and see which one or maybe which ones if they have a bigger budget uh, align with their goals and which one they're most excited about and then they would reach back out and say okay we've chosen you you are the winner here is your money and now we begin making this thing that you've promised and oftentimes it evolves so the thing that you pitch is very rarely the exact thing that you end up publishing you know it kind of evolves over the course of time you might scale it back you might scale it up you might say 
now that we started writing this, we really think it needs an infographic to help clear up some of the data that we're referring to. Or, mm. you know, now that after talking to this person, we really think we should get video and photo of them in there. Their story is very compelling and we want to hear it in their own voice. So it really does evolve, you know, much like it might in a newsroom. Um, and I think for a brand to think about, you know, they have to think about some of those key things. So what is the budget realistically that they can dedicate to it? I think a big mistake is to come in and think that you're just going to do a bunch of content very cheaply and achieve the same goals as you would with very expensive content or very premium content with a lot of multimedia. Oftentimes you see, um, you know, there, there's two different models. There's sort of the the quantity model and then the quality model, right? And they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. You can have both, but it's very expensive to have both. So brands who are looking for a content campaign that's going to run a long period of time might go to a publisher like BuzzFeed or or Huffington Post who can really produce a lot of content very quickly because that's the goal they're looking for. Someone who maybe has a smaller budget but only a smaller period of time that they want to cover with content might go to a publisher like the New York Times or the Atlantic or Wired where they can do a big splash piece that runs in a shorter period of time. So they need to think about that too. You know, How much time do we have and how much budget can we really dedicate to it? And then obviously just wanting to know their messaging and what sort of perception they want to give people and what sort of connection they want to make with their audience. And hopefully the publisher can help them with that, but some guidance up front always helps. Hmm. So is it possible to have an independent news organization anymore? You know, it's a really interesting question. Um, but I don't think it's any more interesting now than it ever has been. Um, I think now we're a little more transparent about it. The reality is that if no advertisers took out ad pages, a magazine wouldn't get published today or 30 years ago. You know, that's always been the reality. It's supported oftentimes by an ad model. Obviously, there's a little more pressure now because subscriptions have dropped in recent years. There's a lot of free content online, so people are less willing to pay. So that's a reality that people are facing. Um, but I don't think in most cases that it reduces the overall trust that someone can have in the brand. I think if if the content is executed poorly, I think that does hurt the reputation of the publisher. And this there's a lot of data that backs that up. But as I said, people do trust branded content when they know that it's from the brand and when they feel like it's providing them some sort of value, whether that's entertainment or information or something else. So there is a way that the two can exist in harmony. and. Um, in most cases that I'm aware of, publishers create separation between their editorial staffs and the staffs who create their branded content. Those are almost always entirely exclusive of one another. They do very little collaboration from a content perspective. They might share technology. They might have the same ad ops team or the same audience development team, or they might you know, work inside the same CMS to make sure that the content is consistently formatted. Um, but very infrequently do you see someone on the editorial side creating content for a brand or vice versa. Um, and publishers have done a lot of work to make sure that that um, stays that way, that there's not a fear about whether their editorial content can be trusted just because they're doing some branded content. It seems like this is the future of journalism. If you agree with that, why? If you don't, why not? I, I don't know if it's a future of journalism in that all journalism will become sponsored. But I do think that it's a reality of the media industry that there will be branded content. Um, I think we'll see that evolve. You know, we might, right now, we're, we've only been at this at a major scale for a few years. So there's still time for us to learn. The same way with banner ads, right? The first banner ads that came out, those like strip ads at the top and right side of your page, when those first came out, 25 something percent of people would click on it. 
Now, I don't think anyone could even remember the last time they clicked on one of those, right? That's the reality. It evolves and we have to change our tactics. So I think we will see branded content evolve. Um, I think what we'll see more often is brands taking this in-house. So right now, as I said, they don't really know how to do it. So they're bringing in the experts to tell them how to storytell, and that's the publishers right now. But there are some brands who have already started to do this on their own to acquire talent to do it in-house. And that's where you see groups like um, Red Bull has the Red Bulletin, which is a whole site full of content created by Red Bull all about adventure sports um, and anything that produces adrenaline. So they're doing that pretty well and they get great traffic and great engagement. Um, some smaller brands like Casper, the uh, mattress startup, they started a, a site all about sleep and that's produced entirely in-house. So I think we'll start to see more of that with brands that are a little braver and that have the resources to really dedicate to hiring a full staff and driving traffic to a new property. Um, any publisher will tell you that's a pretty big endeavor to start from scratch, but um, I think it, it's a reality of the way that the industry is heading, but I think how exactly it'll um, come to be or how exactly as readers will interact with it might change and evolve over time. Wow. So we've talked about the industry as a whole, right? That was a very high level discussion. <laughs> if I'm a journalist or specifically someone that might be on one of those teams at T-Brand Studio, for instance, what should I think about as I'm putting together a piece of branded content? And how does that, how is that different than how I've been taught to write good stories? Yeah, a lot of the basic concepts are the same, right? You still want to create a story that's interesting. You still want to find what's unique. Um, you still want to think about your readers and what they're interested in. You still want to use good sources and, and try to find the truth and always be truthful in what you're writing. Um, one of the things that's very different is there's a lot more stakeholders. You know, typically when you're an editor or a, or a rather a, a journalist or a freelancer, you only have your editor to be holding to. You know, they're the ones that you pitch your story, they approve it, you write it and submit it to them, and you get their buy-in, and then they're sort of your advocate for anyone up the chain. That's really the extent of, of your involvement for the most part. When you're working on one of these teams, there are so many stakeholders at the table because you're gonna have not only your own editor, you know, and maybe even a level above that, but you're gonna have your branded maybe video team that's going to say we want to see your copy and we want you to help us write questions for the interviews you might have a designer who says okay i'm designing your infographic i actually want to sit down with you and figure out what data should be visualized and what do you think is the most important what's the hierarchy you might have to sit down with your developers and say how should i lay out this page based on the story you've written what do i need to build to house that story and then beyond that, you also have, you know, you have the advertiser who's going to have certainly have a stake in the content. They're going to want to know how quickly can it be done and could you add a little bit more of our brand and can we use our colors on the font and things like that. And then you'll have the agency who, and sometimes more than one agency, you know, typically you have a creative agency, a media agency, you might have a PR agency, all who kind of have a stake in the game. The PR agency saying, we really want the story to be just a little more upbeat, you know, given some of our recent news. Or you have the creative agency saying, well, we try to steer clear of blue in most of our ads, so maybe <laughs> you can get rid of the blue in the background there. You know, there's just a lot of feedback coming from a lot of different places. And if you're a member of one of those teams, you're going to have to be involved in those conversations. You can't just submit your copy and then move on to the next thing. So it does require a little bit of patience and a willingness to take feedback and not take it personally. Um, and that's one of the challenges I've seen a lot of folks who work in branded content do come from the journalism side. And that, I think, is the biggest barrier for most people. You do grapple internally with this idea of objectivity and have I sold out? Have I gone to the dark am side? Yeah, am I being sneaky? Um, but more often, it's a very tactical thing that you're dealing with of, 
I, I'm getting three sets of feedback, two days apart, and some of them conflict with one another, and how do I reconcile this? And then how do I explain when I don't feel comfortable making a change? How do I go about you know, changing this a little bit, but not too much? You know, there's a lot, of, a lot of balancing that happens when you have that many cooks in the kitchen, and that can sometimes be a challenge. So it's just work diplomacy at its best, right? Yeah, a lot of politics. <laughs> <laughs> can you talk about the Overlap League? Yeah, so the Overlap League is um, a native advertising newsletter that I started, and it came out of a lot of the questions that we've been talking about today, that there's so many journalists who are curious and want to know what this industry is about, and there are so many marketers who are trying to figure out how to understand storytelling and how to tell stories better. And I sort of realized that native advertising and in some ways content marketing are, are at the overlap of those two different fields and that there's a double learning curve. You have to learn a little bit of marketing and you have to learn a little bit of storytelling and you have to be a good editor but also understand ad ops and you know there's a lot of overlap and, and it can be a challenge to kind of keep up. And the other challenge is that there's really no central place to find all of that information. There are a lot of publishers and a lot of websites that cover it a little bit. You know there's an advertising website that might hit, hit at native advertising. There's a marketing site that might touch on it, but very seldom do you find a whole site dedicated to this kind of stuff. And that just kind of increases the difficulty in keeping up and feeling like you have a grasp on it. And I used to field a lot of questions from people on a one-on-one basis saying, you know, I'm curious about the industry. Could we have coffee? Could we sit down and, and talk about it? Where do I look for resources? What books should I read? What news sites should I check? And have you heard of any jobs? And then from the other side, you'd get well, I have this open job and I don't know where to list it because, you know, who lists these things? So my thought was, I wonder if I could organize all these conversations and create a resource for people. And so that's kind of what I set out to do with the Overlap League was to create this newsletter. And right now it's bi-weekly, so I didn't want to overwhelm anyone's inbox. But um, every other week just to send out a list and here's the top news and it's curated. So I don't send everything, just the stuff that I think is most relevant. Um, here are three recent examples that I think are worth emulating, and I explain why, you know, what's good about this piece and why it's worth putting some time into exploring. I list out any upcoming events, whether that's a conference or a webinar or something else. And then I also list out open jobs, and a lot of the open jobs come from within the community, from people who are hiring or for people who are moving to a new job and saying, this is my team, they're great, and we now have an opening for this role because I'm moving on. And so it's become, in a lot of ways, I mean, it's almost like a message board. Um, and in a lot of ways, I guess I'm a moderator. You know, there's not direct conversation happening in the newsletter. You know, folks will reply to me and I'll connect them with people. But um, it just allows me to kind of share the insights that I have in a way that I couldn't if I was trying to have coffee with every one of these hundreds and or thousands of people. So um, it's been a really cool experience to kind of get to share that with as many people as I am now on a biweekly basis and to get the feedback from people. I just heard um, actually a few days ago someone said hey I got a job based on a listing that I saw there thank you so much and so it's just really cool to get that feedback and know that people are learning and it's helping them and that I'm actually being able to kind of connect some of those dots for people and hopefully make that learning curve not so not so hard to climb. You identify as a storyteller in a lot of different media (laughs) What is a storyteller and how does a storyteller approach telling a story and how is that different from average Joe? That's a really good question. I don't know that I've ever heard it posed that way to me before, but um, I think at the core, when I am assessing a situation, I want to think what is interesting about this and what would other people care about? And so there's a little bit of psychology and, and motivation in there and trying to figure out what resonates with people 
you kind of have to have a good understanding of human emotions and the psychology of sharing a little bit. I do a lot of reading about that kind of thing. But I kind of want to pull out the gems, right? Like we all know a good story when we hear it, but it's really hard to define up front what makes a good story. Um, there's a famous court case where they said the same thing about pornography, right? Like, I don't know how I would describe it to you, but you know it when you see it. And storytelling is very similar. You know, how to, how to tell a good story is a tough thing to nail down. Um, but the things that I try to focus on are truth. You want the story to be true, no matter what the story is that you're telling, unless, of course, the intent is the opposite if you're doing fiction or something. But in our case, I always want it to be true. Um, and that can guide you away from doing a lot of things that feel icky, is just asking yourself, is this true? Is this the true representation of the situation? Um, and finding what's unique. So you don't want to tell the same story that's been told a hundred times. And what is unique about this story or the way I can tell it? So a lot of times you'll say, well, there's 300 lists out there of you know the best gifts for Valentine's Day, but has anyone made a video about how to make these five best DIY gifts? Maybe that's a different perspective we can bring by using a different format. Or, you know, thinking about what's unique about the perspective that you can bring. Maybe everyone who's telling those stories are telling it from the same perspective, from the same experience, and you have an experience or a perspective that's entirely different. So I think that's something that can play into content marketing, but just also in life. You know, what, what can you uniquely bring to the table and how can you, you tell your story in a different way? Ancient Greeks had a lot of theories and philosophies on stories and how they're built and you know what makes a story interesting. And a lot of those theories center around a certain finite number of the ways that a story can go, right? And I think a lot of us have heard this. It's, you know, person on a journey, <laughs> foreigner comes to town, overcoming the monster, all these yeah. kind of storytelling rules, I guess. Mm -hmm. When you're looking at those storytelling rules, and let's say we had to make a similar set for a brand that comes to a publication, what would be the general types of stories that are told if you were trying to categorize them? So for instance, yeah. you know, I, I read a, a really great piece recently that was sponsored, and I think it was from BP, and it was all about I think you, you might have read this too. It was it came out fairly recently, and you know it was kind of going into their process, right? It was kind of mm -hmm. about their process, but it was also mm -hmm. in general, like what what do we know about the ocean and what, like what's happening underneath the surface. Right. So that would be under some type of category if we're trying to yeah. categorize these. Do you have a sense of what the categories are for different types of branded content? I've never been asked to categorize them before, but I th it's pretty clear to me. So hopefully I can come up with a good list for you. So the kind that you just talked about, I guess, would be like pulling back the curtain. And for a lot of brands, especially brands that have a product or service that's hard to relate to, that's a really good thing to do, right? To say, this is our process, or this is how we make something. It's like that whole show, how it's made is, is basically that, and people watch it. So how can you do an episode of that, essentially, you know, pull back the curtain and show what it's like to work there? Um, I think. Influencers is another common trope that comes up where, you know, we want to talk about up-and-comers. Okay, so you're going to end up doing a series of 10 interviews with up-and-comers and fresh faces and game changers and strivers. There's like these words that advertisers <laughs> use all the time um, where you want to find someone who's making a difference and then tell their story. So that's a really common and align um, yourself with that person. Right? Exactly. Yes. Like they are innovative and so are we. So that's that's one thing. Um, another category that comes up a lot is when an advertiser has a data set 
and they want help telling a story with that data set. So many advertisers will release annual reports or they do a study, they've done some sort of research, they have collected a big data set around something and it's sitting somewhere in a spreadsheet or a database and they don't know how to help people connect with it. And so then it becomes, well, we have all this data we've been tracking you know, as an example, maybe you're a credit card company and you can tell when does holiday shopping really start. And so a publisher could look at that and say, well, let's make a cool interactive infographic that shows what do people spend on? Is it more clothes that people get as gifts or is it more electronics? And, you know, or maybe it's experiences and you can kind of plot that and show how that all that data differs and do people spend on certain things during certain times. So taking the advertiser's data and making that into a story. Another one that comes up a lot is very service oriented. Um, so an advertiser maybe has a product or service that's really helpful, and so they wind up wanting to create content that offers tips. Something very actionable, very service oriented. So that's where you see the you know an HR type company or an HR SaaS product is saying ten interview questions to ask every candidate, and you know it's because obviously they want you to then hire them through their platform or. You know, you see 10 ways to avoid messes in the car, and that's being brought to you by an auto advertiser or a cleaning product. So trying to create um, a sense of service that they want to help people and that their product is just one of the ways they help people. They can also share their knowledge. So those are some really common ones. And then there's some that are almost a joke, like a trope of the industry. So anytime you get an auto advertiser that wants to do content, the first thing everyone pitches them is a road trip. And it's like almost a joke at this point, right? So, you know, we have a car and our audience really loves food. And you say, great, we're going to do a road trip and visit the top 10 food destinations on the coast. <laughs> and it's like, you know, every publisher who got that request is coming back with a road trip. So those are a few, you know, you kind of want to think outside the box and expand your thinking a little bit to, that's one of the questions from a publisher side to definitely ask yourself is who else is going to pitch something just like this and recognizing your limitations that may not be your niche you're probably going to lose that one to car and driver or you know the drive which is the time property um so thinking about you know who has that niche and is that my niche or is it someone else's and if it is the same niche that we have then how can i again bring that different perspective or or br bring a unique element to the way i tell that story to finish it up you do a lot of public speaking, and what accompanies a, a, that type of gig is usually some beautiful deck, and then you have these key takeaways at the end of it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not really a good speech if I have no idea what you're trying to leave me with. There's exactly. the kind of last few maxims or nuggets that I should take away and like feel empowered to go move on with my life and understand sponsored or native content in a new way. What would be some of those maxims from your presentations that, that you just find are great sound bites when yeah. you're talking about the industry? So the one that I find myself repeating a lot is to find your area of authority. I think that's key for an advertiser, um, but it's also key for a brand that's doing, you know, on the publisher side as well, to make sure you know what you have the authority to speak about and stay to things that are within that. You know, don't be afraid to expand the limits of what that is but don't step outside of it you know there is limit and you'll know because it won't feel right but to define that area of authority and work on creating content that lives within that that's really key the other one is to make sure that you know your audience and i know that that's obviously the name of the podcast but i do say it all the time i say know your audience um i often say know your people because i like making acronyms where everything is the same letter in one of my presentations it's like <laughs> people place you know presentation um but yeah yeah exactly <laughs> Yeah, so um, knowing your people because 
they're the key. They're the people who are going to interact with your content. And if at any point you find that you're making your content for yourself, you've you've already lost. It has to be what they what their needs are, what their concerns are, what they're interested in. And if you forget your audience at any point when you're making that content, you're you're not going to get the results you want. So trying to add those gut checks where you say, is this what our audience is interested in? Because as marketers, it's really easy to love everything that we make because we know our goals and we know, you know, the measurement of that content. We know how it's performing. But at the end of the day, that's not really what's important. It's really about how your customers and your readers are actually reacting to it. And then the last one, I have this quote that I love to, to use in presentations because I, I find it really inspiring. It comes from a TED Talk by Emily Wapnick. She is talking about this idea of multi-potentialites, right? So a person who has more than one area of expertise and they combine them to some sort of super force. And she says, innovation happens at the intersection. That's where the magic happens. And so I always encourage people, you know, whether you are a, an advertiser or a publisher, to you know, find the magic at the intersection. Find those people who can create an overlap, and, and that's where the magic's going to happen. Thanks for listening to the Know Your Audience podcast, episode one with Melanie Diesel. Subscribe to Know Your Audience. Episodes release weekly, every Tuesday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time on iTunes. You can learn more about the podcast at getkaya.com slash podcast. Until next week, know your audience, grow your audience.